The Nerdalogs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy based on shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Try to keep your stories around five minutes, laugh at jokes, cry if appropriate, and applaud everyone who has the guts to sit here, tell a story, and come out as a nerd. Hi guys! My name is Eric Arnell, and welcome to the 2012 year-end Best of Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories Podcast. The stories and songs you're about to hear were selected by our listeners as some of their most memorable moments from the past 25 episodes of podcasts. Rather than being chosen by votes or anything so technical, what ended up determining what got on this episode was, uh, in a lot of cases, just whoever gave the most interesting nominations for their favorite stories. So to that end, you'll be hearing six speakers who aren't me introduce the stories on here so you can get an idea of just why these tales were chosen. But first, as always, we're going to start with a song. This comes to us from our, our music episode back in March and features Nerdalogs member Andrew Bentley performing a heavy metal tune that he wrote back in high school. It is both hilarious and awesome. Everybody enjoy Forbidden Fruit. The Phantom of the Opera had the right idea if he could have He loved her with his whole heart, loved her like no other. She didn't want him, no one could. And so he lashed out, and so he thrashed about, and so he reached out and took what he wanted. Temptation is a beast. Which is more unpleasant pain To hear you of your sickness Will leave you feeling lame It's something that you can't excise And you're the one to blame It hangs there in the empty air Forbidden fruit <laughs> Little rapey, I think <laughs> You showed me how you fell You set my spirit soaring Soon you would smash it down again <laughs> Only to assure me we can't come together Why even bother with me then? And so my brain stops Beat my head against walls Despair creeps up and crawls Back into my mind now Temptation is a beast Which is more unpleasant pain To hear you of your sick this will leave you feeling lame It's something that you can't excise And you're the one to blame It hangs there in the empty air Forbidden fruit I just wrote three verses Seems the game is over You came out the winner And already have moved on, I guess you still have your love, it's simply from another, I'm nothing but a fucking mess. <laughs> and so my mind bleeds, my heart is choked with weeds, and my spoon so pleased to save it from destruction. Temptation is a beast, which is more unpleasant tame, to heal you of your sickness. This will leave you feeling lame It's something that you can't excise And you're the one to blame It hangs there in the empty air Forbidden fruit Forbidden fruit Forbidden So when we were doing nominations, uh, we got a pretty interesting one from uh, Nerdalogs member Alex Talavera. He said, any story that Charlie Cannell has ever told, which I was like, wow, that's a good endorsement. So we're going to pick a Charlie story, which I, I went and picked the porn shop one because that's my personal favorite. So Alex, what prompted you to say such a nice thing about Charlie? Um, well, let me, let me first say that I don't know Charlie outside of your stories. Um, I only met him because of this group. Um, uh, but it, it, it turns out that really he, he should have been doing his own storytelling session without us for probably his entire life. He didn't tell any stories that were, I guess, uh, 
crown. I don't. I don't know. Like, if you want me to say, like, why Charlie's stories were uh, significant or important, I don't have anything to say except the fact that Charlie is a good storyteller, and uh, the the life that he has lived, he's able to sum up in a way that engages people, and. I know that this is probably just me being a big fat sucker, but uh, the fact that all of his stories take place with his New Jersey, East Coast, Bostonian uh, family and friends, that doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt at all. So Charlie tells a bunch of stories in this worldview and embodies his characters that are basically cartoons, and uh, I love that I that I know a guy who has lived a life that is kind of uh, as ridiculous and fool as as anybody's, uh, but also has the voices, you know, to back it up. So I guess that's what I like about it. When I first moved to Chicago, I was met with the harsh reality that we need to get a job, and I lived a block or two away from a video store and decided to apply for sort of silly reasons. Like most of my generation, all my life choices made in my early 20s were heavily influenced by pop culture. And in this case, by Kevin Smith's Clarks. I wanted to be Randall. <laughs> a week or so later, I got called in for an interview. It went really well. And just when I thought that the guy interviewing me was going to give me the job, Got a very serious look on his face. Now, you seem like you'd be perfect for the job, he said. But I need to ask a few questions that might make you a little uncomfortable. <laughs> I had no idea what was coming. I just nodded meekly. <laughs> he goes on. How do you feel about nudity? <laughs> uh, fine, I guess. Am I going to be naked? <laughs> what kind of video story is this? And then he laughs. He says, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I always handle that. I always ask that the wrong way. We're hiring for the all-adult location right down the street. Can you handle working in an environment surrounded by videos like this? At this point, he held up a box that had the angriest-looking man I've ever seen with by far far the largest dick I've ever seen. <laughs> and this was my introduction into the porn industry. <laughs> I would go on to spend four long and hard years <laughs> working at Nationwide Video. The store, it was basically like a photo negative of your average independent video store. And it had a really small closet-like section of general videos and an expansive, gigantic floor of porn. And 10% of the inventory had to be non-adult to get the permit for the neighborhood we were in. So it was just videos from all the other stores in the chain that they didn't want anymore. So we had an entire shelf of airheads. And Directly below that, we had an entire shelf of the Avengers. Yeah. It was wonderful. But uh, every once in a while, someone would wander in from the street and look at the videos we had, explain how horrible our selection was, and we'd have to explain. You know, no, we're basically a front. The real stuff was all upstairs. They would laugh, point out that that's odd, and then go upstairs and not come down for an hour. <laughs> It's hard to describe just how disorienting the porn section was the first time I was there. Because I've never been squeamish about porn. When I was 13, I would spend my Friday nights watching Scrambled Spice Channel, just trying to make out the shape of a boob. And you just, it'd be like purple and squiggly. Like, oh, nipple. And so, like, I was always okay with this. But when I saw the sheer volume of pornography, like, I just didn't know what to do. And it just, like, it took your breath away. And you're like, how could it be this much porn in the world? <laughs> and uh, we were, like, in Boys Town, 
like Clara was it Clarendon and Irving Park. So yeah, it was split between about between straight and gay about halfway through the store. And there's a transsexual section that would sometimes be on the gay side and then six months later would get moved to the straight side <laughs> and then would go back. No one ever explained why. I never got an answer to that. But in the middle, you would sit at a counter and monitor the security, the security cameras. And next to us was a life-size statue of the alien from Aliens, but it had a corset and panties on. <laughs> it was pretty hot. But uh, it was during my second shift monitoring the uh, monitors that uh, I understood that this job was a little different. I saw a guy in the corner of the room, and I thought I was catching a shoplifter for the first time. (laughs) But then I realized that he wasn't struggling to put something into his pants, and he was struggling to take something out of his pants. I caught my first masturbator. Told my manager, called the police, and in two minutes, this is in Chicago, two minutes, the cops were there, handcuffing the guy, dragging him down the stairs without laying him put his dick away. It turns out that we always gave free porn to the cops, so they would show up really quickly whenever we called. But uh, when you get right down to it, working at the video at the porn store was pretty much the same as any other retail job. It was just the subtle differences that made it a little different. Like instead of chatting up your regulars about, you know, a new sandwich on the menu, you would tell them that Booty Talk Thirty Seven had just come in, and we knew that's what they were into. <laughs> you know, and when lazily staring at the calendar to find when you're working. You wouldn't even notice the picture featuring porn star Belladonna putting a baseball bat where you should never, ever put a baseball bat. (laughs) And you would become so desensitized. Like, after a month, I didn't even notice these things. I I thought Bukaki was something everyone knew about. (laughs) Don't look it up if you don't know. (laughs) Just leave that one alone. But, you know, eventually I realized that I had achieved my dream of becoming Randall. I could spend my entire shift listening to punk rock, (laughs) yell at customers that gave me shit, and the management always agreed with me. They told us to tell if anyone asked for the manager, tell them you're the fucking manager. Got people shut up real quickly. But, you know, and no one cared. And we would screw around with coworkers break fluorescent light bulbs over each other. It was just like any other job. We even had a bowling team that we called the Smut Peddlers. It was the perfect job for a college kid trying to stay away from responsibility for as long as possible. Although, it made for some real awkward conversation at Thanksgiving. Uh, so I've got Nerdlogs member Steve Hirsch with me right now, and hey, he... Hey, Steve. How's it going? Uh, going good. This is like coffee talk or something. Yeah. Um, Steve nominated Aaron Pinkston's story about wrestling in high school, which is a, a great story. I love it. I'm really glad it made it onto so many people's lists. Steve, why did you like that story so much? I like that story because it was so clear that Aaron was passionate about it. Like, this was really an important moment in his middle school life. And uh, he really brought a lot of uh, focus to it. Like, it really came through that he is a professional writer. This is uh, something he put a lot of work into. And that's just always fun to hear as an audience member. And personally, for me, having done high school wrestling, I could identify with just a lot of details. And he did a great job of dropping details all throughout the story. And, yeah, he did a great job of capturing the way... uh, wrestling and competition in general can uh, really have an impact on someone in their early years. This is a story of sports glory and the subsequent downfall. (laughs) I'm not sure why, but when I was in sixth grade, I decided to join the wrestling team. I found myself pretty nostalgic of this time in my life. The working so hard at practice I had to throw up, the sweaty, stinky, damp cellar where we had our practices. 
the constant soundtrack of one headlight on loop as 13-year-old boys practice half Nelsons and cradles. The Rockfall, the Rockfalls uh, Junior High go Jets. <laughs> Wrestling team, uh, we weren't world beaters, but we had a good coach in Mr. McHugh and a number of perennial state finals contenders. I was not one of them. In sixth grade, I was all of four foot ten and a soft, chubby 90 pounds. I would give anything to be 90 pounds today, but believe me, it wasn't impressive. (laughs) After a hard few weeks of practice, I was not so ready for my first match. For those who don't know how wrestling works, each team has two or more representatives at each weight class, with the best of Team A usually squaring off against the best of Team B. I was a B, but only because we only had two people in my weight class. My first uh, match was pretty indicative of my amateur wrestling career. My opponent, also, of course, 90 pounds, was at least six inches taller than me, a string, bre- a string bean of muscle and length. Just seconds into our match, he m- maneuvered into a German-, German suplex and promptly pinned me. I was stunned, not because I was so quickly dispatched, but for the reason that a German suplex was considered legal. For those unaware, the German suplex is a move usually reserved for fake wrestling, where the competitor performing the move gets directly behind his opponent, hands around waist, and and hoists the other backwards over his head to slam the other onto his. The audacity of this guy. (laughs) Following this match, I kept chugging along, getting pinned after getting pinned, and then Rock Falls Junior High had their scheduled meet with Challenge Middle School from neighboring Sterling, Illinois. Rock Falls and Sterling would what you be what you would consider rivals. Separated only by a river, it was basically one city with an unnatural division. Sterling, though, was larger, more prosperous. That was where the steel mill was located and the Super Walmart Supercenter. <laughs> people from Sterling called people from Rock Falls greasers. People from Rock Falls called people from Sterling names I'm not allowed to share here. (laughs) It was time for my match. I was game, but expecting nothing different. But when I heard my rival, my opponent's name, there was a glimmer of hope. I don't remember his first name, but that's not important. You see, in wrestling, there's a term for someone who gets pinned a lot, for the image of them flopping around on their backs. They are called a fish. I was a fish. His name was Salmon. (laughs) Salmon was soft and chubby like me, though a bit taller and older looking. Still, I capitalized on our difference in skill, handily winning, uh, scoring point after point, shutting him out. A blowout in wrestling terms. He was proof that all junior high wrestling teams had an Aaron Pinkston, and I was better than Chandler Chandler Middle School's Aaron Pinkston. Directly following the win, there were giant cheers from my teammates, cheers from my teammates' parents, the entire gymnasium filled with the din of revelry. (laughs) They all understood the significance of this win. By the reaction of the crowd, I'm sure Salmon did too. I expected popping champagne in the locker room and a celebration parade. Obviously, I didn't get those, but I was satisfied. As I've grown older, I I was a state finalist in high school speech and my high school valedictorian, but this was a true highlight of my life. In seventh grade, the seventh grade wrestling year was much like the previous, a complete imperfect record. But I had one thing on my mind. There's a sports cliche that athletes circle a date on their schedule on the calendar. It may be a a cliche, but there was a day that I circled. Challenge Middle School. <laughs> the day of the meet was nerve-wracking. I had grown to a rotund 119 pounds. What if Salmon wasn't in my weight division? What if he decided to quit wrestling or was faking sickness to duck me? <laughs> Walking around the wa- locker room and to stretch, I was more nervous than I had been for any other wrestling meet. Then, as I came out, there he was. I looked at Coach McHugh. He nodded. It was on. (laughs) 
Our second meeting wasn't quite like the first. I quickly took Salmon down on his back and pinned him in less than two minutes. Glory had returned, and it was ever so sweet. But the but at the beginning of the eighth grade season, I had decided I had decided I made a decision. I would go out on top. It wasn't an easy decision though, as I may have not been very good. I was competitive, and I didn't like to quit. I had to hold back tears when I told Coach McCure that I. Uh, that I wasn't going to return to the team. He was crushed. I may have only gotten him two wins in two years. (laughs) But I was the coach's pet, as shown by my two straight oil can awards for best teammate and hardest worker who wasn't good enough for real awards. (laughs) In exchange, I would act as the team's manager, helping out coach whenever he needed it and taking score and timekeeper at home meets. And then came the home meet with Challen Middle School. As I arrived to the gymnasium after school, Coach McHugh pulled me aside. Salmon wants to wrestle you. (laughs) Perhaps it was hubris. Perhaps it was my competitiveness. But I instantly accepted. I hadn't worn a singlet and headgear in a year. I hadn't practiced in a year. I didn't even get weight, so I don't know if we were even in the same weight class. <laughs> really, I don't even know if this was actually legal. <laughs> but it didn't matter. It was time for a taste of that sweet, sweet glory. No one on my team questioned what was going on, why I was wrestling on a day without any practice. They all seemed to know. <laughs> Finally, it was time for my match. Standing across from Salmon, I noticed he had turned into a monster. (laughs) My mirror image had spread at least six inches taller than me, now all arms and legs. Junior high wrestling doesn't test for steroids, but Salmon was a clear case for the final. (laughs) I was pinned in 43 seconds. So right now I'm talking to Shelby Mongan, who is the favorite storyteller of your stories. Uh, Shelby, you nominated Chris Geiger's story about Pokemon. What is it about that story that speaks to you as a nerd slash person? Well, partially because I'm Asian, I really like the story and it involves Pokemon. Uh, no, I re-listened to the story today and there was one phrase that he said, right, um, that Chris said at the beginning of the story that really stuck out. He said something about uh, nerdologues being like Alcoholics Anonymous for nerds. Um, and I love that idea. And I, um, I'm a sucker for stories that are really funny but have a lot of sincerity to them and mix in those honest moments and those kind of vulnerable moments. And I think that that was one of the best parts of Chris' story is that he's talking about Pokemon and it's kind of ridiculous and it's talking about wanting to beat children at a game made for children. And yet there's this serious note to it and there's this sincerity and there's this honesty to it. And I think that's the kind of the essence of nerdologues. And I remember at the sport episode that that story really, it was a great night, but that story really stuck with me. So I, I thought about this today and, and I was thinking about like whether I should talk about it or not. And I just decided why the fuck not? Because this is like alcohol is anonymous for, for, for nerds. <laughs> so, um, so I've never been much of a sportsman. I certainly enjoy sports. I like football. I enjoy basketball, I suppose. I like going to baseball games and eating and drinking. (laughs) Uh, uh, So I like sports. uh, But there was one thing I did from middle school until today, uh, all day until I came here, uh, that has been my sporting competitive endeavor. And you might say, and especially my roommate might say, what did you What did you train for today? Because you were in bed all day watching Thirty Rock, and I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what it is. If you guess Pokemon, you would be right. Uh, uh, I love Pokemon. Uh, and scene. Uh, no. See you all later. Uh, yeah, no, from middle school until today, I've been playing Pokemon. Uh, and it, it's been intermittent. It's been an intermittent love affair. I couldn't tell you every single fucking Pokemon, but I could tell you the best ones. And, <laughs> and I could tell you the best moves, because that's all that's important. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Coughing. Uh, and then 
in middle school and high school, I played, and I didn't really, like, I wasn't competitive with it. Uh, and then in, uh, in college, I was okay, and then uh, <laughs> two years ago, <laughs> I picked up Pokemon Diamond. Uh, not Pokemon Pearl, because that sounds like a woman's, like, thing. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like an applicator of some sort. <laughs> I picked up Pokemon, Pokemon Diamond, and then, consequently, like, all the Pokemons I missed and started literally collecting them all. Uh, and and uh, it was right around when Nerdalog started, and they made fun of me, like, so much for it while I was playing. And I did it in secret. Like, I spent all this time in secret playing Pokemon and training them. Because there was a competition coming up in Chicago, right? And I was like, I was like you know what? I'm going to do this. Like, I, for once in my life, I'm going to a competition and I'm going to fucking rock a competition at something, you know? Like, so I, like, I spent time on forums and on, like, message boards and, like, talking to people about, like, the, I've watched YouTube videos. I was like, oh, yeah, so I'm going to get the ride on and I'm going to get this in with this thing and I'm going to sweep that guy and do that. All technical talk. Uh, I had the best team ever. Uh, and there's, there's, believe it or not, in Pokemon, there is a really intense level of training called EV training uh, that is... That if you're competitive, that's what you know. Like, if you're just playing Pokemon, if you're a child and you're playing Pokemon, you don't ever have to know this. But if you're competitively training, then you're, like, buffing stats. You're fighting guys specifically to buff stats into a certain direction. So I was doing that for, like, days on end. You know, in between rehearsals and shows, I was, like, on the train, you know, buffing stats on things. And finally so it finally was like all right signed up for the competition i go to the competition i didn't tell anyone i was doing this <laughs> my girlfriend at the time i was just like no i'm just going to the game stop and i so i have my ds like i have my fucking like four man team because they only have four mans for competitions you know like the best team i've ever made like the toughest team and i'll tell you who they are later uh, i don't care for this <laughs> but, uh, but and I show up, and as you'd expect, there were a bunch of 12-year-olds. <laughs> that was the entire field, right? Destroy them, Chris. <laughs> so that's what my thought was. <laughs> right? At the time I was 24, I was like... I'm gonna win this. <laughs> And all these 12-year-olds are there with their parents, you know, and they're like, yeah, and they have, like, their Pikachu hat and, like, you know, uh, like, their, their Pokemon jackets and stuff like that. And they're, like, ready, and they're, like, like they're showing off their teams. They're like, I got this team because it's real cute. You know, I got, like, Pikachu, and I got all this stuff because it's real cute, and I like this team. And I'm like, I got the destroyer of worlds on my team. Like, I have the team that will destroy your team. Like, you put out a Pokemon, dead. Put out a Pokemon, dead. Put out a Pokemon, dead. I don't... Fucking no quarter given on my Pokemon. I turned my Pokemon into real bastards. Like, like you see the cartoon and they're like, we're gonna go win. My guys are like, no fuck all of you. We will destroy worlds. So I was like standing there and I watched all these twelve-year-olds playing and I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I withdrew. Um. And, because you can play online, so I can still whoop ass online, but uh, I didn't want to crush all these 12, because I was 12 playing Pokemon in middle school, right? And I remember my really cute team of Pikachu and a Squirtle, Squirtle that I named Bubbles, and that I loved this team, and I crafted them so horribly into doing nothing. They were ineffectual, you know, like slapping each other, you know, like... <laughs> And thinking it was the best team on the planet, you know? And I had crunched the numbers. I had figured out the game, you know? And it didn't feel right to do that to them. So I withdrew, and now I still play, but I play for my own edification. Uh, and the kids can have the tournaments. So. Thank you, Chris. Hey, guess what, Chris? Yeah, what? I actually do have a birthday present for you. Da -da -da. I wanna be the best. No one ever was. To catch 
Teach them is my real test To train them is my cause I will travel across the land Searching far and wide Each Pokemon to understand The power that's inside Pokemon, gotta catch them Andrew Bentley, Nerdalogs member, uh, he nominated Steve Hirsch's story about why Steve didn't drink in college, which is a story uh, I think a lot of people liked. A lot of people nominated it. I loved it. Uh, but I wanted Andrew to talk a little bit about why he loved it so much. Um, I loved it because there's basically like two types of stories people tend to tell at your stories, um, and those are the ones that they think uh, everyone will be able to relate to, and then they're the ones that are designed to be more more personal and more idiosyncratic to the person. Uh, and the first part are absolutely necessary. Um, they're great, and you know they kind of hold the night together. They get everybody in the right mood. And then, I, but I, for me, the highlights are usually, you know, those those few things that are just so specific to that person. And this one for Steve was just, I mean, a so personal and b so strong. Like he came out and just presented that with such pride, like without the the slightest hint of. Um, you know, shame or like apologism or like, uh, you know, excuses. And I, I, I went to college with some people who were straight edge who didn't drink. And I mean, I, I absolutely know like what a shitty time that was for them. Like at parties and everything, just they had their whole, you know, separate, uh, party culture and everything. And then for Steve to kind of delay everything out like that, uh, and just be like, look, here's why, you know, I have my reasons, uh, and then to do it just in such like a, a calculated academic manner, which is kind of Steve's forte, which is what I, I, I love about Steve's stories, is he, he comes in, um, it's like point A, B, C, D, case closed. Um, <laughs> and I thought that that was an approach that gave a lot uh, to this particular story because it is such a viewed as, as such a you know a weird thing kind of like an uh, ephemeral like on something in, even even nerds may have a hard time understanding uh, and so I thought something like that that was that different and that deeply personal was different than coming in and talking about, you know, Mario or something else that, you know, people could really grab a hold of. Uh, because like I, I said, you know, those things are kind of the, the glue that hold everything together, but um, those are the ones that, that stay with me. So the, the theme is, is revelry and or drinking. Uh, and I'm going to talk about uh, not drinking. In college, in college, I was uh, that guy who didn't drink at all, uh, and people would often ask me at parties, uh, hey, are you, uh, are you having a beer? Uh, do you drink at all? And I would just say, no, uh, and I would try to usually play it off as no, uh, not tonight, but eventually people caught on that I just never, uh, <laughs> never drank. And they would, again, they would ask why, and uh, I didn't really have any kind of answer other than, uh, I just don't. Um, I had a few answers in my head that I didn't really want to talk about, and in retrospect, I've, I've thought of uh, a few more. I'm going to go over some of them, and Kevin's going to put them up on the board <laughs> as we go. Uh, so first of all, consistent no. Uh, it was just easier for me to always say no than to figure out when uh, I would drink and when I wouldn't. I knew I, knew I didn't want to drink a lot, and uh, uh, in high school, I gave up soda, uh, when I was uh, a, a wrestler. So I knew that I could just cut something out completely, and that was very manageable to me. So I decided to just do the same thing in college uh, with alcohol. Uh, next up, brain cells. <laughs> uh, 
You know, in high school health classes, you'd hear that thing about every drink kills X many brain cells. And I thought, my brain is my most valuable asset. Why would I possibly want to kill any of them? I want them all. There's no way I'm going to risk any of my brain cells. Uh, Next, not drinking was an unexpected attribute. I like being able to surprise people uh, or, or stand out in, in unexpected ways. Uh, and I, I still have that quality about me. For instance, uh, I have a motorcycle, and people, people don't expect that of me when they first meet me. And I like surprising people with that fact. And, and at parties, when pressed, I like surprising people with the fact that uh, I wouldn't drink at all. <laughs> well, you get into that conversation of, dude, we're gonna, you're gonna drink tonight, or we're gonna get you drunk by the end of the year. No, you're not. And that's, a conversation. that's a conversation that I could always win. Uh, again, with the consistent no. Uh, next up, taste bad. <laughs> I'm selling this for you, Steve. Uh, I appreciate it, Kevin. Especially in college, you'll hear that. Uh, it's an acquired taste. You just have to get used to it. And I thought, no, I don't. <laughs> if this tastes bad, I do not have to get used to it. That's just not a thing that I need to worry about or, or have to do at all. Uh, this next one's a little more complicated. Uh, cause and effect. Yes, cause and effect. Uh, I did sell that one, <laughs> uh, in college, I was really into Ayn Rand, and that probably could fill one or... I said in college. Everybody, everybody experimented in college. I experimented with objectivism. And... And one of the themes in Ayn Rand novels is this idea that people will try to uh, uh, see something that they want and skip over the thing that's supposed to get you there. So if people want to be around friends and they want to celebrate, uh, they'll notice that that often happens around drinking. But really the drinking should follow being around friends or having something to celebrate. Uh, But people in college especially will just start drinking and think, oh, I'm around friends, I've got something to celebrate because I'm drinking. Um, and I really hated that. Um, but that's tough to explain when someone just offers you a beer at a party, so I kind of <laughs> most of the time. Um, next up, cops. Cops. <laughs> uh, at the time, I, I told myself that the fact that underage drinking is illegal wasn't really a part of my rationale. I thought and still think that the drinking age should be 19. But if I'm honest with myself, uh, the fact that it was illegal did play into my decision. Uh, along with that taste bad, it was just something that I didn't want to deal with at all. Uh, there, I didn't want that risk of, um, of getting a ticket or, or getting arrested or having a fake ID. Uh, growing up, pretty much any time I would leave the house on the weekends or at night, my dad would say before I left, be smart, be safe. I think that explains a lot about me. Uh, uh, So, yes, fear of cops. Uh, Next up, worked in a bar. Yes. Uh, In in high school, I worked every weekend at the Comedy Sports Improv Theater in Milwaukee, which, like just about every improv or comedy theater, has a bar attached to it. So I got very used to being around drinking, being around drunk people, but not drinking myself because, one, I was underage, and two, I was at work. Actually, the ordered those probably switches. Uh, more importantly, I was at work, so I wasn't going to, to be drinking while, while hosting or working in the ticket booth. Uh, and finally, uh, loss of control. Uh, this was probably the one I would be least likely to admit to in college, but this was probably the, um, the biggest one. Being afraid that uh, drinking would be a, a slippery slope to losing control either for that night or or for a longer period of time. Uh, then and now, I like to feel like I'm in control of my life and my surroundings. Uh, and I saw a lot of people drinking and, and not having control of themselves. And I was afraid of that. Um, so all of these are still more or less true about me. Uh, but I drink now. So I think 
there, there's something <coughs> still deeper that I haven't quite figured out. Um, yes. <laughs> Maybe, uh, so if you want to talk about it, we can discuss it over beers at the bar. <laughs> okay, guys, I'm here with Sean Patrick Boyle. Uh, he is our audio engineer. He's a great storyteller. He's a skilled filmmaker. And he is a new father. So, Sean, you have got a lot going on, dude. Uh, you nominated Nora Seidman's story about family, so why did you like Nora's story so much? Well, it feels like a lot of our teenage memories have this feeling of irony to them. But for Nora, this ironic theme plays out with an extreme contrast, where a meaningless failed relationship is reined in by this horrible tragedy, becomes awkwardly ironic, and then finds this poetic redemption when all is said and done. It kind of represents this beautiful circle in life that goes disappointment, tragedy, comedy, and then love. And I want to thank Nora for sharing how our family found so much laughter and love following that tragic loss. First story ever on your story, so yeah. go with me. Uh, and like a lot of your stories that I've heard, this starts in high school. Uh, when I was 15, uh, sophomore year, met a nice young boy that I really liked, and we had started dating. He was a year younger than me, and we had six weeks of the mm, worst relationship in my life. Not, I mean, not, not that bad, just nothing ever happened. <laughs> and it was super, <laughs> just super boring, and after six weeks, I was tired of it, and I was like, yeah, we're done, we're done. And uh, to his credit, he had some stuff going on, uh, as demonstrated a week later when his mother passed away oh, no. <laughs> uh, after a battle with cancer, and it was not the best. And then uh, three years after that, my father passed away from cancer, and my mom, Amy, knew that this boy, David, David's father, Jeff, had, you know, gone through the losing of a spouse thing. And they, so she kind of went to him for support. And they ended up falling in love and getting married. <laughs> so now, <laughs> now my stepbrother is my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> I believe, I believe, uh... When, when Jeff sat down his, his kids and told them that he was, you know, seriously with my mom, uh, David's response was, you know, I was the first one to date Amy and I was the first one to date a sideman, so you should be more original. <laughs> um, and not that I have a lot of proof to back this up, but I assume when this situation happens, it's hairy at best and not... <laughs> Not, you know, not the ideal family situation, but I consider myself lucky because our family is wonderful. And, you know, my mom is my best friend and my stepdad is, I'm like the nerd daughter that he never had because his kids are kind of all hippies. (laughs) (laughs) And, (laughs) ouch. Um, And, you know, we joke about it at all family event at all family affairs like if we're when we're all together um they insult david's taste in women and insult my taste in men like all the time (laughs) and uh you know whenever i david doesn't live in chicago um he was in new york for a number of years and now he's in portland and whenever so we don't get to see each other that often but when we do you know we'll usually go out to a bar, have have a couple drinks, and that's, like, the first thing that he tells the bartender, because he thinks it's such a great icebreaker. <laughs> like, hey, guess what my relationship is with this girl that's sitting next to me? <laughs> Fun. <laughs> so... <laughs> so I don't really know. There's not really a moral to this story. I just thought it was and like I just wanted to say to this room and the internet that I just consider myself so lucky that my family is so wonderful that this is like a point of pride with us and just so supportive. 
<laughs> For our last story of today, I have Charlie Cannell on the phone, all the way from lovely New Jersey. So Charlie, like a lot of people, nominated Chris Crotwell's story about the real-life Seven Dwarves from the Family episode. It is a fantastic story. I think everybody agrees. Um, Charlie in particular said it was, quote, the best thing ever. So Charlie, what speaks to you about Chris Crotwell's story? Well, what I really love about this story is that it's everything that I like about the Your Stories, you know, event in general. And it has, like personal feelings and memories and all of that tied in with the simple fact that it is hilarious. Like, I remember my ribs hurting and having trouble breathing when I heard that story in person. Like, it just, it combines, like, every element that is a good story, that makes a good story. And, yeah, I'm very jealous of it. And uh, it, is, it is fantastic. Yeah, so when my uncle was a young man fresh out of the Navy in the late 70s, he married a sweetheart and they had a baby girl. About two months into that girl's life, my cousin Amber, she was diagnosed with a chondroplasia, which is a kind of dwarfism. It affects the limbs, really the sorts of little people you're used to seeing now. <laughs> when she was about a year and a half old, his wife, her mother... Um, absconded with her, disappeared, completely vanished. And this was in the late 70s when uh, you could still feasibly just up and disappear. It's not that easy anymore to just leave the face of the earth. But she did. And he spent about a decade looking for his daughter, and he was crushed. It was really, really hard on my uncle. And that remains the case. You know, life went on as it does. He got remarried, adopted a son... Until a couple years ago, when Amber's mother died, and she started questioning this received narrative that she had been given about her father. So, in short order, she hunts down my uncle and reconnects with him. And the crazy thing is, in that period of estrangement, what Amber had done was become a school teacher, marry another, uh, another, a nice man, a general contractor in Atlanta who also had a chondroplasia. They have two biological children who both have a chondroplasia and adopt three children. Um, one from Siberia, one from South Korea, and one from China. All of whom have a chondroplasia. <laughs> and I don't know how sharp your math is on the fly, but that's seven. <laughs> There's seven of these people. <laughs> seven dwarves. It's, it's their... <laughs> address. The seven <laughs> and not only that, they're incredibly famous. This is the largest family of chondroplastic dwarves in the world. They're called the real seven dwarves. They've been on, um, recently, Anderson Cooper, Barbara Walters, uncountable publications. And I get a call from my mom. A couple years ago, I get a call from my mom, and this is the call. She's like, well, I, we never really talked about this because it was painful for all of us. So, you know, we never really brought Amber up. But you have a cousin. She is a dwarf. She has a dwarf husband. They have five dwarf children. They're crazy famous. We thought they were gone. But, but they, they contacted your uncle. They, they got in touch with your uncle. And they, they're going to be a part of our family. This is a part of your family. This is your first cousin and your second cousins. And they're really inspirational and magic, and this is my confession. <laughs> it's no like, there's a reason they've been on so many shows, right? It's, people want to see this because they, they're proud, they live their lives, um, a lot of people take what they can out of it. And this is my confession, and sadly, when I found out they lived in Atlanta, and I was still flabbergasted by the entire story, the first thing I thought wasn't that this was an incredibly inspirational thing that had happened, or, or like, ruminating on, on estrangement and reconnection and this amazing human thing. Dragon Con happens in Atlanta. And I don't know if all of you know what Dragon Con is, but this is what Dragon Con is. Dragon Con is the Southeast's largest sci-fi fantasy convention, and by that it is four days 
of beautiful, brilliant, radioactively nerdy, completely absurd debauchery, which I've been attending for the last eight years. It's like going home. It's just an amazing thing. There's nothing quite like it. And when my mom says that I'm related to seven dwarves that live in Atlanta, the first thing that happens is this picture in my head develops above me, and it's me. It's me, and I'm Chewbacca. you could possibly imagine the entire rest of the cast of Star Wars and I mean all of them like whichever ones you could want tiny Han tiny Leia tiny Luke tiny Vader and even for a moment and I'm ashamed to say I have to admit it even for a moment a, a tiny Lando but you can't put a prepubescent dwarf in blackface because it's wrong it's wrong you can't do it but it's all I could think about, and I thought, like, what, is this a possibility? Would it be something that I could do? And I know, I know that, I know that these people, you know, they're strangers, but they're family, right? They would let me into their home. They would feed me. They would let me stay there for some reasonably finite period of time. I'm sure there are a lot of things they do for me. But would they do this? And I thought about it a lot over the last couple years, and all I keep coming back to is. Maybe, why not? Because after all, they're family. <laughs> Alright guys, we are just about done with the 2012 Best Of. Uh, as usual, we're going to end with a couple songs. This one comes, like actually a couple of these stories, from our Revelry episode. Uh, this was a super fun song to perform. This was the only time we ever kind of mock use mock electric guitars um although if you couldn't tell just from listening to the podcast it's really just my regular acoustic run through a uh pickup and a a metal pedal but uh yeah this is a lot of fun my favorite thing about this story is that you can hear really well charlie cannell in the front row singing along to every word uh it's super fun and of course dwight hassler just kills it on vocals this is the beastie boys fight for your right
guys, we are at the end of our first year of Best of Podcast. That is pretty exciting. Thanks to everyone who listened. Thank you to all the wonderful storytellers, not just on this episode, but truly everyone who told the story over the past year. You guys are great. Um, you literally are the reason your stories exist and is awesome. Thanks to the people who either let me interview them or called in or Skyped in with me so I could pick their brains about why they like certain stories. I thought that was really cool. Um, we're going to end with maybe the biggest laugh that has ever been had at your stories. Uh, this was during the music episode. It was the first time Steve Persh ever played a guitar in public. And there's a moment in this song where there's just cascading laughter that is super great. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy it. And I'll see you guys in 2013. William Henry McCarter Jr. That's my given name. <laughs> They called me the kid when I picked up a gun Shooting towards fame and shame I robbed and killed, I was a constant threat To the folks of Santa Fe My legend grew, but my bullets pointed me Towards an early grave Then one day, out of the blue The telephone booth Appeared. Howard <laughs> <laughs> came to dudes from San Dimas. Then <laughs> things got really weird. <laughs> Your Stories is sponsored by the Chicago sketch comedy troupe The Nerdalogs and is recorded the third Sunday of every month at the Upstairs Gallery in Chicago. 
5219 North Clark Street. The stories you hear have been prepared and presented by the speakers on a volunteer basis. Your Stories is recorded and co-produced by Sean Patrick Boyle. Our theme song comes from the band State Shirts. For more information on the Nerdalogs, Your Stories, and more, go to www.nerdalogs.com.